Church, let me pray for us once more as we come to God's Word. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here today um, to worship you, to receive from you, to be moved by you, um, and to be in awe of your grace and mercy towards us. As we come to your word right now, we pray, as we've prayed before, that you illuminate our hearts and our minds to receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, it's so good to see so many of you um, today. Um, we had a great week at church camp last weekend. We really miss those of you who couldn't make it. Um, I hope and pray you'll be able to join us next year. You'll get a better speaker, I promise. Uh, now we're back in our regular series in the book of Hosea, and today, as we've read out, we're looking at Hosea chapter 3. Uh, it's a very short chapter, but there's actually a lot going on in our passage. As was read out to us earlier, we know by now that Goma, Hosea's wife, had committed adultery. Uh, we knew this would happen, right? Hosea chapter 1, a few weeks ago, outlined that Goma would be unfaithful to her husband, Hosea. She would turn her back against him. She would betray his love. And sure enough, things played out as expected. Now, of course, uh, we must once again remember that the relationship between Hosea and Goma is a metaphor. It's a symbol for the relationship between God and his people, Israel. And so Hosea 3 is not just a story recounting Goma's unfaithfulness and adultery. It's also a prophetic tale of caution for Israel. And so it is also a word of warning for us today. Hosea 3 is going to be very important for us because it spells out the consequences of spiritual unfaithfulness or sin. It tells us what happens when we turn our backs against God and as we try to live as if he doesn't exist. But it's also important because our passage today points us to the hope that we so desperately need. The hope that regardless of what happens... God hasn't given up on you. God hasn't given up on you. Come to point one with me as we explore what Hosea 3 has to say. Look at verse 1 with me. God said to Hosea, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So, so God is telling Hosea to do three things in our passage. To go, pursue, to redeem, and to restore. You see that. Firstly, God says, go. And God is asking Hosea to take the initiative to intentionally pursue Gomer, his wife, who has, look at our passage, cheated on him. But he is to find her, to run after her, and to chase her down. And can we just all agree that this here, this request, is not an easy process? To have your heart broken and betrayed, but to still take the initiative to intentionally pursue the other, nothing short of great and deep love could motivate this. Uh, but it's not just to pursue, is it? There's also actually an element of redemption in the story. I'm not sure if you've missed it. Uh, the word redemption comes from the word redeem, and that word means to get back or to exchange. And you know, when you shop online, uh, online shopping, and there is an option to redeem a voucher. A side note to all the kids in the room, Father's Day is next week, right? So if you haven't done your shopping yet, it's not too late. Dads, elbow your kids, right? Redeeming a voucher, what does it mean to redeem a voucher? Uh, it means you are using the credit of that voucher to get something in return. There's an exchange that's taking process. 
redemption, redeem. That's what it means, and that's what Hosea is called to do. Hosea, as our passage says, is to pursue her and then take her back from the possession of another man. And later in verse 2, we see a redemption does take place when Hosea offers a payment in exchange for Goma in return. But before we get there, we also notice that there's an element of restoration. So Hosea doesn't just pursue, redeem, and then leave her as a stranger. He is, as our text says, to love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. In other words, to restore her as his wife. Restoration. And now all of this is interesting, isn't it? Because all of this should cause us to just pause and ask this fundamental question. What's the attraction of spiritual adultery? What's the attraction of sin? What's the attraction of rebelling against God, which is the point of Hosea? What's so amazing about it that would cause Goma to turn her back against a loving husband? Well, I think our passage hints at at least two reasons. Uh, Firstly, sin is attractive because it promises love. You see, verse 1 says that Goma is loved by another man. And the word love has a wide range of meanings, but at its core, we know we feel loved when we are treasured and when we are made much of. Sometimes we say we feel loved because someone makes me feel special or they make me feel happy. All of that sounds about right, yeah? Because it's all connected to being treasured as someone who is unique and needed and necessary. That's how you feel loved. And that's what sin promises. It promises to make us feel happy, treasured, special, and made much of. It's no surprise that sin is attractive, isn't it? Because it taps into a very primal desire to be loved, to be treasured, to be made much of. But sin is also attractive because, secondly, it promises pleasure. Uh, Look at the end of verse 1 with me. Uh, Here, it speaks of the Israelites turning to other gods and loving sacred raisin cakes. You read that right. It's talking about raisin cakes. That's funny, isn't it? I've never had raisin cakes, maybe raisin toasts, but it's not even that great, right? Why raisin cakes? What did that make into the Bible? Well, some Bible commentators note that raisin cakes were used in idol worship. And that totally makes sense, right? It was part of a sacrifice. And in context, we see they worship other gods and they eat the foods they offer in worship. Totally makes sense. All of this here reinforces Israel's spiritual idolatry, doesn't it? But it's more than that, actually. Because, you see, raisin cakes were a luxury item. They were a symbol of pleasure. It's kind of like caviar, right? It's a delicacy that tastes good and makes you feel good. And because it's also a form of luxury, it also makes you feel important. Now, that's what sin promises as well. It tastes good either to the tongue or to other senses. It feels good, not just to touch, but also it feels good for our hearts. No surprise that sin grips us, right? It taps into a very basic human instinct for pleasure. All of this is helpful for us because what we see here is that the Bible is very transparent about the reality of sin. The Bible doesn't just condemn sin and says, oh, it's bad, bad, bad. It also brings us behind the curtain and shows us why we're drawn to it, why we're attracted to it. There is a reason why we struggle with sin. There's a reason why we turn our backs against God. There is a reason why even Christians 
are sometimes shaky in their love and commitment to the Lord when they are tempted by sin. Sin whispers love and pleasure into our ears and we listen intently and we buy into those promises. In a church, I want to take a moment to apply this for us and I want to use this passage to warn us as a church about the attraction of sin. Sin doesn't come in raggedy forms, things that would naturally disgust us and repel us. No, sin is often packaged in very beautiful and alluring ways. It usually promises love and pleasure. It promises a good life, but it promises a good life apart from God. Uh, So church, be really aware of what you're feeding your minds and your hearts. Not everything that is sweet, beautiful, and pleasurable is good for you. Now, I really want to say, that's not to say that everything that is beautiful is necessarily evil and sinful, right? Not at all. I'm not saying that. God is the author of beauty. Beauty in its original intent and purpose is to inspire us to worship Him, right? But we can also recognize that beauty has this ability to bypass our regular systems of discernment. Beauty can penetrate our hearts and influence our thinking and our loves and our affections in ways that we don't even realize it. But I also want to say, all of this is not to deny our desire for love or pleasure. It's not wrong to want to love and be loved, not at all. It's not wrong to want pleasurable things. The challenge is we turn to the wrong things. And in doing so, we suffer severe consequences. Because as you come to point two with me, what we'll see is that a good life apart from God is no good life at all. Uh, Verses two to four is very telling. Look at verse two with me. It says, um, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and lethic of barley. Now, 15 shekels of silver or a homer and lethic of barley means almost nothing to you. You read that and you just go, I've got no idea what that means, right? It's not currency that we recognize today. But you see, 15 shekels of silver is actually not a lot of money. To give you perspective, 15 shekels of silver was half the price of what you'd pay for a slave. And that amount of barley wasn't much either. In fact, barley was food for poor people. Do you see what's going on? Gomer is married, but she runs off with another man who supposedly loves her. But here, he's selling her back. He's over her. He doesn't love her. He's done with her. He wants to get rid of her. But as if that's not bad enough, he doesn't even sell her for much. Gomer was as precious as a bride, but is now being traded and sold for less than a slave. Church, here's the thing. Spiritual unfaithfulness and sin promises so, so much, but it always cheapens us. Sin causes us to do, say, and think things that make us subhuman. And one of the results of this is a profound sense of guilt and shame that we feel. And when everything is said and done, we often feel chewed up and spit out feeling Worthless sin cheapens us. But it's not just that, is it? Sin also costs. Read verse 3 with me. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any other man. And I'll behave the same way towards you. 
Church, this here is Hosea laying out a condition to Gomer. He is giving a probationary period for her faithfulness. Zoom into your Bibles with me. We see this in the expression, many days. This here signifies a temporary period. Excuse me. A temporary period where restoration is necessary. Not all of their days, but many days. It will be a while, though not forever. We also see this when he says, you must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any other man. These are the guidelines or the rules for the restoration. In other words, Goma needs time after this adulterous affair to prove her faithfulness. Hosea is saying, I'm redeeming and restoring you back, but I don't trust you yet. We need some time to rebuild this severed relationship. Goma here has to bear some sort of cost for her sin. There are consequences. That's, that's true of us, isn't it? When you think about it, no one comes out of sin unscathed or unharmed. We all come out cheapened and we all often come out having to pay some sort of cost, some more severe, some less. So that even though there is forgiveness, that's the, the, the point of the story, there nevertheless will be some sort of cost and consequence that accompanies it. And of course, uh, sin confuses. Look at verse 4 with me. Uh, For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. You see, Gomer was cheapened. She had to pay the cost for her sin, but so too with Israel. Verse 4 is now speaking of the consequences that Israel will have to face. And for the Israelites, their consequence is that they would be without king and prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household goals. Now again, none of that makes sense to us. But what this verse is saying is that one of the consequences for their sin is that they would be without ruler and they would be without law, they would be without order. That's what king and prince means. There would be anarchy. There will be no one to punish evil or to reward good, no one to look out for the poor and marginalized, no one to curb wickedness. Everyone will be free to do whatever they want. It's a tragedy, you know. We often think that what's best for humanity is total freedom. I'm not sure we really want that. You know, it's true that governments have a bad habit and tendency to overreach their influence. It's true. But it's also true that having no government often causes a a society to descend into chaos and confusion. They will be without kings and princes. What's more, they will be without spiritual hope. Uh, They would be what we would call today as atheists. That's what it means when there would be no sacrifice and no sacred stones. And you know what? The Israelites wouldn't even have the benefit of superstition. Uh, That's what ephods and household gods symbolize as superstition. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, When you take God out of the picture of a society, what you usually end up with is superstition. In Chinese culture, the removal of God created a chasm for things like feng shui. Uh, In some Western cultures, the removal of God created space for things like crystals and horoscopes. In our modern culture, the removal of God creates the space for other forms of authorities like government, economics, or the self. 
All of these become pseudo-spiritual beliefs that help us to make sense of the world around us. Otherwise, there will be chaos and confusion. We know that, right? But you see, for Israel, their punishment for spiritual unfaithfulness and sin is that they wouldn't even be able to have that. No God and not even the false hope and promises of superstition. There would be complete confusion. God would withdraw himself from their presence. There will be no political or spiritual guide, not even horoscopes to lie to them about who the future partner is or what their next job is going to be, right? Chaos and confusion will spread across the land because of their unfaithfulness and sin. Church, Hosea 3's presentation of sin is helpful for us because it shows us that sin cheapens us and causes us to behave in ways that are less than human. I mean, think about it, right? When you lie and manipulate, you are exchanging your God-given integrity and worthiness for what? What are you exchanging it for? Just to get your own way? Just to be perceived in a particular way? What are you exchanging all of that for? When you steal, you are exchanging your God-given dignity, something that money cannot buy, for what? For something that can be bought off the shelf? When you are sexually immoral, whether digitally or in person, you are exchanging your God-given purity for what? For pleasures that leave you with scars and stains that follow you. Don't you see, God made us to be in His image, dignified, valued, and worthy, yet sin cheapens us and makes us less than human. But sin also leaves us with severe consequences, doesn't it? Because you see, in our passage, adultery could lead to divorce and separation. Or more broadly, crimes could lead to jail time. Anger and bitterness could lead to broken relationships. And you know, there are sometimes consequences even when there is forgiveness of sins. Now, it's critical to remember that all sins are forgiven by God when we humbly repent of them and trust in Jesus. There is eternal forgiveness in Christ. But there could still be earthly consequences for sin. For example, if you're like Goma, you've been unfaithful to your spouse, but your spouse has generously and kindly forgiven you, it'd still be foolish to think that everything will go back to normal as before. You can expect that your sins will have consequence, that maybe trust will take time to rebuild, that vulnerability will take time to reconstruct, and some of that trust and vulnerability needs to be earned back. Things aren't the way they used to be. If you've committed a crime, but you know you've been forgiven by God, it'd still be foolish to think that everything is okay. You still need to face a legal system. You may have to live with shame. You may have to carry that record with you for the rest of your life. If you have relational conflict, but you've reconciled, it'd be foolish to think that, again, everything is just restored well and dandy. Regardless of which side of the conflict you're on, it may still take time for things to be less awkward and less intense. You see, church, the reality of sin is that it always stains, even when there is forgiveness. There's always costs and consequences. And of course, sin always leads to confusion. God allows sin to run its course 
as an expression of his punishment. And we experience this sometimes when there is no direction in life. We experience this when we have to live from one moment of pleasure to the next, one addictive cycle to the next. That's what happened to Goma, right? Her unfaithfulness and sin completely tore her life apart, stripped her of the one who truly loved her, cheapened her, costed her, confused her, left her in a state of emptiness. She's unwanted in this passage. She's even worth less than a slave. But friends, that's not just Goma. That's us. As I describe all of this, you may be thinking, hey, that sounds very familiar. That sounds like me. Because this is what sin does to all who are in its path. That's the destructiveness of sin. And so friends, I'd like to take a moment to, to actually caution us once more. And I want to caution us, don't be naive. And more specifically, don't be naive to think that there will be no consequences for sin. And I think I'm speaking to two groups here, right? Uh, firstly, if you are not a Christian, then you must not be naive to think that your indifference or your rejection of God is inconsequential. Now, I'm not saying that you are naive. Now, I'm sure you're very bright and intelligent, definitely more bright and more intelligent than I could ever be. But, but, but maybe you've never been told that your, in, your disinterest and indifference, they are not neutral decisions. There will be consequences. Don't be naive. But I'm also speaking to Christians, and I think we are in greater danger here, church. Because we know the gospel. And sometimes we use the gospel as an excuse to indulge in more sin. Thinking that we are increasing sin so that grace may abound all the more. Does that sound familiar to you? Don't be foolish, dear brothers and sisters. At best... You are storing up for yourselves earthly consequences that you will regret. Sin always catches up. Do you hear that? You may feel like you are getting away with it right now. It always catches up. At worst, you may be stunned by the eternal consequence of actually not being right with God. Because here's the reality. A regenerate and converted heart hates sin, and longs to be right with God, even if it's a spiritual struggle. And a heart that is indifferent to what sin may prove itself in the last days to be a heart which says, which Jesus says, I never knew you. Church, you see, Hosea 3 is a helpful challenge to us today. Our sins have consequences, and I pray that this is a warning to us all. But then you see, and this is why God's opening words to Hosea in our chapter changes everything. Because read verse 1 with me. God says to Hosea, go to Goma. Give her what she does not deserve. Give her love, affection, care, and restoration. Buy her back even though she has been cheapened. Elevate her status to that as a wife even though she should be treated as a slave. And that's the beautiful turning point of the story, isn't it? That though sin cheapens, costs, and confuses, there is nevertheless hope for redemption and restoration. I'd like, you to, I'd like to bring you to point three with me, because this is the hope for sinners, for people like you and I. 
Because remember, the story of Hosea and Gomer is a story of God and His people. And you see, church, what Hosea does for Gomer is what Christ does for us. What Hosea does for Gomer is what Christ does for us. And we need that, don't we? Especially when we know the bitter aftertaste of sin. Uh, But Hosea 3 verse 5 is powerful. Because this is what it says. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek their Lord, their God, and David, their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. You know, church, this verse here speaks of hope. Uh, The word afterwards is very important because it says that a time is coming, right? Sin will run rampant, but afterwards things will turn. The Israelites will return and turn to God instead, but it gets even more specific. It says they will turn to God and David, their king. Now, of course, David is a very important figure in the Bible. He's a good king insofar as he brings about a degree of prosperity and blessing to God's people. And so, yes, historically, the two kingdoms of the Old Testament are reunited under one head, King David. Things stabilize under King David. He's, he's good, right? Uh, but you see, King David is not the sum of their hopes because if you've read the Bible, you also know that David is also an imperfect king. A king who succumbs to the very same sin and temptation that Goma does. If anything at all, his sin is far greater. In his sin with Bathsheba, he doesn't just commit the sin of adultery. He covers that sin with the sin of murder. And so church, as you read verse 5, the climax of this verse is not David. It is the one who will come from his royal line. Verse 5 is prophetic. The hope of Israel, the hope of God's people will come from among David's offspring. And that's why it's no surprise, Matthew chapter 1, the author of this gospel traces Jesus' lineage to King David as a clear sign to say that the prophecy in Hosea 3 is fulfilled. Jesus Christ is the one whom the people will turn to. And it's through Christ that the blessings will spread across the earth and reverse the effects of sin. Because church... What our hearts long for is actually found in Christ. You see, in the gospel, we see God pursuing, redeeming, and restoring broken sinners. All of us have sinned and wandered our own way. We have sought to live apart from God. We've listened to the lies that promises love and pleasure. We've been disappointed by it. We are left helpless in it. But God, rather than wait for us to clean up and get our act together and crawl back to Him, He takes the initiative. He goes to us. He comes to us in Jesus Christ, descending His heavenly status, becoming human, becoming like one of us. He pursues us all the way from heaven down to earth. For what? To redeem us. Because you see, sin has held us captive. And because of that, there is a price on all of our heads. It's the price of death. But Christ comes to die in our place, to be the perfect payment so that our bondage can be paid, so that we are released from our captors and freed unto new life. He redeems us. You see, Christ exchanges His life for ours. Though we have been cheapened, though we cheapen ourselves, God gives a perfect exchange And makes us valuable 
and worthy. But you see, God doesn't just redeem and leave us, doesn't He? He frees us, He restores us. I want you to notice one of the critical turning points of Scripture is when God calls us His children. He doesn't just see us as sinful, rebellious, and unfaithful people. He forgives. And He says, all of that, all of your past, all of your mistakes, they no longer define you. And church, when you think about it, this is love, isn't it? God in Jesus Christ lavishes the love that our hearts long for. To not only feel treasured and be made special, but to be treasured and to be loved for who you really are. I want you to listen very closely because you see, so much of the love that our world gives is a love that is offered when we are on our best behavior. The love that our world gives is when we're able to meet someone else's needs. When we're able to live up to somebody else's standards, when we've satisfied somebody else's expectations. This love is so conditioned upon our performance. Now what's more, our world's love always demands more sacrifice from us. For us to give more in order to get more love in return. You know, that's why we are always so stunned Um, By incredible examples of sacrificial love, right? Um, You know, the love of a mother for a child, uh, that help that is offered to a stranger, the sacrifice of a spouse for a disabled partner. You've read these articles online. You've seen memes and social media stuff about this. You look at that. These are the things that get shared because it stirs us. It makes us go, oh, wouldn't that be great if that were universal? Wouldn't that be great if that was for me? Wouldn't it be great if that was eternal? Now, you see, in Christ, you are truly treasured. You see, we had nothing to offer to God. In fact, we had turned our backs against Him, and yet He chases after us and says, You are mine. You are precious in my sight. And if God has loved us at our worst, we can be confident His love for us will never change. Church, the beauty of Hosea 3 God's pursuing, redeeming, and restoring love to broken sinners is a tangible reminder that today, God has not given up on you. And you know what, friends? This means do not give up on yourselves. Because you see, I think there is a chance that there are some who are sitting in this room and you're thinking, Pastor, I've tasted the consequences of sin. I know what it's like to be cheapened and confused. Stain of sin, I know that too well. But don't you see the great news is that it is exactly for people like you, like me, whom God has come for. No, no, the gospel is healing for hurting and hopeless people. You are not too far away from God. If you can hear this, wherever you are, then you must know that God has not given up on you. He loves you, and He's telling you that there is a place for you at His table. Now, what's more, I believe that this here is an encouragement for us, here as Christians, to not give up on our friends and family, especially those who have wandered from the faith. And I'm especially referring to those who have wandered from the faith because this was Gomer's experience, right? You see, in our passage, she is married to Hosea. There was a relationship 
Uh, but it was severed, it was broken, she left. Church, we must not think that God gives up on those who grew up in church, youth group, Christian schools, and have left. We must not think, oh, they know the gospel, they left, I guess that's it for them. No. And there could be so many reasons for why they've left. They could have left because they never understood the gospel. There's every chance of that. They may have left because they were hurt by some Christians or by the church. They may have left because of life circumstances. They may have drifted away because they lost contact. Whatever the reasons may be, never for a moment, church, believe that God has given up on them. We must not even believe that God has given up on them, even if their hearts are hardened. Oh, I know that some of you have siblings or even parents, maybe parents who taught you the gospel. And you think to yourself, oh my goodness, how could it be? Your heart is heavy, you're worried, and you think, is that it for them? No, no. God hasn't given up on them. Nor should we give up on them either. You know, maybe God's call here in our passage, go to Goma, is actually a call for us today. Maybe there is someone we need to go to as a conduit of God's grace and hope. You know, just as Hosea went to Goma to demonstrate God's abundant and faithful love, perhaps we today, this week, have someone to go to in order to show this very same love. Church, do not give up on yourselves thinking that you are too far from God, but also do not give up on your friends and family, thinking that though they may have known the gospel, that that's it for them. No. There are still opportunities, and God hasn't given up. Because you see, God loves us too much for that. And God promises pleasure for us. Think about it. That's what our hearts long for, right? Pleasure. It's a surprisingly kind of simple longing and need. But friends, the pleasure that the gospel pours out, that God pours out for us, is not a pleasure that fades with time. It's actually a pleasure that is resilient, even in the face of trials. What I mean is this. You see, our world often has a binary view of pleasure and joy. It's this, either you have complete pleasure and joy or you have complete pain and suffering. That's how our world sees it. It's either one or the other. And I think that's what's tragic about our world because we are often either waiting for things to get better before we get happy or we are ignoring the tragedies of our world in order to be happy. We're constantly waiting for things to get better or we just ignore the reality that the world is broken. It's true, isn't it? Do you know people who are perpetually upset because they live from one tragedy to the next? That they feel like they can't get a break, that there is no hope, that I just want to be happy, but things just just keep going worse and worse. They keep descending and their minds are just stuck there. They just think, this is it for me. I've got no other option. There is no hope. Oh, there's another camp, right? They just think, you know what? Life is a mess anyway. I'm just going to ignore everything. I'm going to pretend like problems don't exist. And all they do is just drown themselves in pleasure. There is little concern for brokenness and injustices in the world. They build a bubble and they live in there and they block everything out. You know, often we envy people like this, right? Oh, what a carefree life. Oh, it must be great to live like you. But at the end of the day, we know that neither of these positions are sustainable. 
Because you see, for the one who drowns himself in pleasure, that looks great. But all it takes is the slightest hint of affliction to pierce and pop that bubble for everything to fall apart. You know, is it any surprise that so many in our world today are surprisingly emotionally fragile? That we cannot accept the possibility of pain in our lives? You see, the Christian faith offers a very different alternative. It is neither naively optimistic about our world, nor is it fatalistic or despairing. It tells us that pleasure and pain can actually joyfully coexist. That one does not cancel out the other. In fact, one helps us to understand the other. The Christian faith does not reduce deep pleasure to raisin cakes. It doesn't reduce joy to a delicious meal. It doesn't reduce pleasure to just having your loved ones around you or a nice vacation. Those things are good for sure, right? But they are not the sum of true pleasures. Because you see, the Christian faith speaks of pleasure and joy that is possible even during grieving. Even as you grieve over the death of a father, a mother, or a child. The gospel speaks of pleasure and joy that is possible even when tragedy strikes. The gospel speaks of pleasure and joy that is permanent because all of that pleasure and joy is not anchored on circumstances, but in Christ. Christ, who has demonstrated his radical love and commitment to us and for our good. Don't you see? So I want to end with a particular application that is probably a little bit different than we usually have. I want to tell you that Christians experience pleasure in a different way. Christians who know they are loved by God have what I can describe as heightened senses. Heightened senses. It's a bit crazy, okay? But as Christians mature in their faith, they are able to detect hints of God's kindness even when they receive news that their child is ill. They are able to feel God's love for them even when they feel rejected and cast out by others. They are able to feel God's tender mercies to them even when their plans for their life have not panned out the way exactly that they've wanted. They can, in the words of Romans 12, verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. You see, their pleasure senses are so heightened that even worldly afflictions cannot dull the fact that God loves them. They're able to sense the pleasure of God's providential care, His kindness and His tender mercies, even in the greatest of tragedies. That church it's a different kind of pleasure, isn't it? And wow, imagine these heightened senses when things are going good. Because I don't want you to hear me say that Christians are just those who can make lemonade out of lemons or we just try to find the silver lining in every situation. No, a Christian's experience of pleasure is deeper than the rest of the world's. You see, we eat raisin cakes or caviar and we can enjoy the sensations not only for what it is. We enjoy these things as an expression of God's generosity towards us. 
Have you realized this? God didn't need to give us flavor or texture. God has no obligation to give us any of that. Oh, except that He loves to give His children good things. And as Christians, we receive the gift and the giver when we soak in these pleasurable experiences with gratitude for God in our hearts. Now again, we don't depend on these things for pleasure. Our senses are heightened beyond them. But when God does give them, and He does, we enjoy them with a deep sense of gratitude. And the same is said, and maybe you've experienced this, when you sit down with a bunch of dear friends over a nice drink, and there's rich conversations, there's humor and jokes, there's fun and laughter, maybe even a board game or two, right? And we enjoy it, not only as a relief from the crazy busyness of our world. No, we receive that moment as a gift from God. He loves us, you know. He heightens our senses so that our taste buds are not just stimulated by the taste of food, but so that we can see and taste that God is good to us. He allows laughter to reverberate in a room, not only to relieve us of the reality of brokenness in this world, but also to allow us to create and share a moment with those in the room that we can never forget. A particular checkpoint moment in our lives when we go, oh, do you remember that day? Do you remember that joke? Remember that... God is so good to us. You see, we have heightened senses of pleasure. And so maybe an immediate application for us today, after the service, is to really taste our food during lunch. Sounds weird, right? But we sometimes forget that our food has taste. right? And as a parent, I know exactly what that's like. You're busy feeding and you're eating and you're like, what did I just eat? I don't know, I have no idea, right? We forget that, right? We're so busy. We're so frantic that we, we, we stop to taste. We forget that flavor is a sign of God's favor. I want to invite you today as a spiritual exercise to taste this afternoon. Receive that pleasurable sensation with a heart full of praise and thanks to God for his amazing grace and love towards us. And ask, church, that all of these things would stir our longing for God the giver. The good news is, despite the fact that we've turned our backs against God, God hasn't given up on us. He loves us dearly, and this is our hope. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you so much that you do not give up on us. Despite our rebellion, Even though we've turned our backs against you, despite our disobedience, you pursue us, you chase us down, and you lavish your love upon us. And so, Lord and God, I pray today that we would be deeply challenged by our warnings with regards to sin today. Maybe some of us have minimized the effect and the extent of sin. Maybe we have become way too comfortable with it. Gracious God, show us the reality of how it cheapens and costs and confuses us. But our Lord and God, we pray that as we dwell on the reality of sin in our lives, that our eyes will behold Christ, who sees all that and still loves us and still does not give up on us. Father, would you move us? But Lord, I also want to be praying for many of our friends and family um, who may have known you, Uh, who may have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but for some reason that they have departed. 
Our Lord and God, our hearts are heavy. As, as we think of friends who don't yet know Jesus, we today want to especially think of them and pray for them, that you will soften their hearts, uh, that you will warm them to the beauty of the gospel, and that you will use us to be conduits of grace, to show them that you have not given up on them. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.